And so today I want to begin by reading out of 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. And it says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And I want to focus today on verse 20 where it says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God who is greater than our hearts knows everything. And I want to preach a message today called free from blank, free from blank. And the reason it's called free from blank is because you're going to be able to fill in that blank with whatever it is that a year from now you want to be able to say, I'm free from this. I'm free from this thing. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you once again for your word. We pray that you would just continue to speak to us and through me this morning. Let us hear what you want us to hear today, God, to become more like you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I know. I know that guilt and condemnation and shame and a sense of failure will gnaw at you and will hold you hostage if you allow it to. It will gnaw at you and hold you hostage. We tend to carry guilt and shame for far too long. And here's how I know. Because if you're in this place and you are carrying guilt and shame, it does not matter how long you've been carrying it. You've been carrying it for too long because we were not designed to carry guilt and shame. So some of you walked in this place and you were carrying guilt and shame that you have had with you for years or decades. Some of you, maybe it's a recent decision, a recent thought, a recent condemnation that, that you're carrying around. But I can tell you this, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, you've been carrying it around for too long because you were not meant to carry it at all. And it's amazing how guilt and shame have kind of an internal and external effect on us. Like it's something that we carry internally and we feel internally. But how many of you know, if you've ever carried around the burden of guilt and shame, you know that there are times, there are moments where it is a physical experience. You can literally feel the weight of the guilt and condemnation. You can literally feel the weight of the consequences of decisions that you've made, choices that you've made. This past Christmas, uh, for Christmas, I got Kristen a weighted blanket, and it's a significant weighted blanket. It's 35 pounds, and uh, because we share a bed, it's like it was for her, but we both get to enjoy the benefit of the weighted blanket. And I'm a weighted blanket believer now. I love the weighted blanket. I used to toss and turn like crazy, and the weighted blanket just kind of pins you down. You have like no choice but to submit to the weighted blanket when you get in bed. But I noticed one negative side effect that I have now overcome, but when we first started using the weighted blanket, I'm the type of person that when I wake up, whether it's with an alarm clock or whether it's on my own, when my eyes open, I am fully awake. My eyes open and I, my feet are on the floor in like five seconds. I am up and ready to go. But what I realized with the weighted blanket was that when my eyes would open, I was not so quick to get up. Because when there's 35 pounds on your back and you're laying in bed, there's just something really nice and comforting about that moment. 
It just kind of keeps you still, kind of keeps you right where you are. And this is what the heaviness of guilt and shame can do in your life. It can weigh you down so that you don't get up and get moving to where you need to go. It can keep you in a place that you were never meant to stay. That is what the heaviness of guilt and shame will do. And if you've been with us through this series, you know that we talked about how at the beginning of the year, we usually make goals, we usually make resolutions, and goals and resolutions are short-term things that we can accomplish if we just apply ourselves a little bit more. If we just pay a little bit more attention, if we're just a little bit more disciplined, if we just apply ourselves a little bit more, we can accomplish our goals. But what we wanted to do throughout this series was to set forth some declarations to say, we want to set some declarations that we're going to say over our lives to say that these are things that can only change with the help and the power of God. That if God doesn't intervene in our lives, that if God doesn't move, these are not things that we can do on our own. And our declaration for the final week of who I'll be in 2023 is this, that in 2023, I won't be mourning over past guilt and shame. In 2023, I will not still be mourning over past guilt and shame. I don't know about you, but some people are really good at laying on the guilt. Have you ever known someone that's really good at laying on the guilt really good at giving the guilt trip. Like you have to call out on something. You're like, hey, I'm really not going to be able to make it this time. And they're like, oh no, that's fine. I know everybody's going to be really disappointed that they won't see you, but it's okay. And they're just laying on the guilt. Nobody likes somebody that lays on the guilt, but we all know somebody like that. In my fifth grade year of elementary school, I had both the worst teacher of my life and the best teacher of my life. I went to a school where in fifth grade, we had one teacher all day. There was no changing of classes. We had one teacher all day. And in fifth grade, I had this teacher named Mrs. DeBerry. And Mrs. DeBerry was one of those teachers who was just waiting to pounce on any kid that did anything that she didn't like. She was just watching and waiting. You could see it in her eyes. She wanted to get you. And so she said at the beginning of the year, that one of her forms of punishment was that if you kind of crossed the line so much so that she really thought you needed to be punished, this is what she said she would do. She said that she was going to put on bright pink lipstick and kiss you on the cheek and make you wear it all day. And we thought she was kidding. And one day, I, I remember it vividly, I was going up to turn in a quiz on Miss DeBerry's desk, and she had this really long, large, like, wooden pencil name placard that said Miss DeBerry on it, and it was held up on like two dowels. And as I was going up to turn in my test, I literally just tripped over a desk and I grabbed the desk to catch my fall, but I grabbed her pencil name placard and it snapped the dowels and the pencil rolled off the desk. And so I like fidget and find the pencil under the desk. And when I come back up, she is applying pink lipstick. <laughs> and I'm like, there's no way this is going to happen. But she kisses me on the cheek and I got this pink lip mark on my cheek that I have to wear the rest of the day. The rest of the day, I wear this pink lipstick mark on my cheek. And this is where I ended up with the best fifth grade teacher in the world. Because everybody saw me walking around with these pink lips on my cheek that day, including the school administration. And believe it or not, kissing a child on the cheek and making them wear it all day, is frowned upon in the education system. The very next day, we had a substitute and Ms. DeBerry was no more. She did not work 
at the school anymore. And, and I honestly, as a kid, I didn't fully grasp the severity of why they took such quick action. Because what I thought was, probably this is because it's inappropriate for a teacher to kiss a child. One of many things. But the other thing that I thought was, I assumed that what Ms. DeBerry was trying to do was to control our behavior by embarrassing us. But now that I look back on this incident in hindsight, I realize that it was actually much more severe than that. What she was using to control our behavior was not just embarrassment, it was shame. It was, it was marking to say, this is who you are. You are marked by your actions, and I want everybody to know it. And I'm not saying, trying to say that Mr. Barry is Satan. <laughs> not fully. But what I am saying is that this is a lot the way the enemy works. When we, when we do something where we think we mess up, we make a mistake, the enemy likes to make us think that we're wearing a mark on us so that everybody knows what it is that we did. Miss DeBerry was one of the best people I've ever known at laying on the guilt and laying on the shame. But, but the problem so often is that if you don't know someone who does that to you, often you are the one that does that to yourself. That often you are your worst accuser. That often the finger that is most strongly pointing back at you is your own. And so often we have this internal sense of guilt and shame that is not even being applied to us from someone else. It's being applied to us from ourselves. And so no one even knows about it. And see, that is what the writer is talking about in 1 John when it says, when your heart condemns you, God who knows all things sees where you are. He sees where you are. See, I, I think something that sometimes we get a little bit confused is this idea that our heart is the end all, be all. But here's what you need to know is that, is that in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? See, the good news is that even your heart is not the final authority in your life. That your heart does not have the final say over your life. And see, that can be confusing in a culture where a lot of our messaging, a lot of what we say is centered around this idea that we should follow our heart, that we should do whatever our heart tells us to do. But the Bible says that God who knows all things is greater even than the thoughts of your heart. That God who knows all things speaks your identity even more than following your heart. And there's a, a real problem when we enter into this idea of only following our heart because what that does is it makes us think that we have to get our heart right in order to come to God. If we're following our heart, then our heart cannot lead us to God if our heart is still astray. And so we think we have to get our heart right in order to go to God. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And this is where it drives home. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That we approach God's throne confidently, not only when our heart is right, not only when we've got all our ducks in a row, but in our time of need, 
we still are able to approach God's throne confidently. And this is the time where you feel least like approaching God's throne. This is the time where you feel least like you're able to go from him in our time of need. We want to get everything right before we go. I don't know about you guys, but I'm in my life, I've always been most nervous to go to the doctor when I think they might find something. Like when I already have an inkling that there might be something going on. And this hasn't happened many times in my life. But a few years ago, I was having kind of these really weird uh, stomach side effects, like with almost everything that I ate. And I dealt with it for a while, and I dealt with it for a while. And then finally, I was seeing my doctor about something else. If you've been around, it was when I broke a bunch of my ribs falling off a roof. And and he started to look at some things, and he said, there's kind of actually some like levels in your stomach, stuff that's kind of weird, so you need to see this specialist just to make sure everything's okay. And he was, he was reassuring me that for the most part, what he was seeing was normally fine, but then he mentioned that also on the rare occasion, every once in a while, it can be caused by a very serious issue. And how many of you know, whenever a doctor even mentions a serious issue or says a scary word, it's all you hear. It's all you remember. It's all you know. And so he says, I'm going to make you an appointment with a specialist who, of course, could not see me for two weeks. And so for two weeks, I was terrified about seeing this specialist. I was terrified about seeing this doctor because I was concerned about what he might find. I was concerned about what he might see. And this is not a phenomenon that we experience when we're just going for a regular checkup. We have no inkling to think that anything is wrong. But when we think they might find something, we get more nervous. And I think this is sometimes how we approach God, is this idea that when we know we've got something else going on inside of us, when we know our greatest self, when we know the things that we've done, the things that we've said that have caused us guilt and shame, that we become afraid to go to God because we're afraid of what he might find. And it's in those moments that we have to remember that the Bible tells us that God who knows all things still sees and wants us to come into his presence with confidence, that there is nothing that we can bring to him that he doesn't already know. But see, the reason that we so often don't move beyond this idea of guilt and shame is a confusion or a misunderstanding that we have between the words condemnation and conviction. Condemnation and conviction are two very different things, but that we sometimes use interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable. They are not the same thing. See, this verse says that when your heart condemns you, when your heart condemns you, see, there are moments where you will be convicted that are important moments that we need to respond to. But, but condemnation is a completely different thing. See, we get them confused, but when we talk about condemnation, condemnation highlights what's wrong with you. Condemnation highlights what's wrong with you while conviction, while conviction highlights what Jesus did. Condemnation says that you'll never be enough when conviction says that the Holy Spirit has more for you. See, the Holy Spirit convicts us and draws us to Jesus. Condemnation drives us from Jesus. Condemnation drives us away. Conviction pulls us in. And that's why so often the enemy uses condemnation. And if your response to the guilt and shame in your life drives you away 
from Jesus. You are responding to condemnation, not conviction. You're responding to condemnation, not conviction, because conviction will always draw you in. See, condemnation starts to sound a certain way. Condemnation says, well, you, this is just how you were made, so this is just how you have to be. Condemnation says, this is just how your family is, so this is how you will be. Condemnation says, you know, what's done is done, so you might as well actually just embrace this life of less. You might as well just live this life of less because what's done is done. It says, if you, it, condemnation says, if people knew what you were dealing with, if people knew what you were dealing with, they would think less of you. If people knew what you were dealing with, they wouldn't want to be with you. Condemnation says God had a plan for your life, but you screwed it up. You messed it up, and so now it's not available. But conviction says God has a plan for your life, so he gave his son to make it possible for even a sinner like you, even a sinner like me, to come boldly into his presence. Conviction reminds us that God has more for us, that in light of his sacrifice, we can do better, that in his power, we can do better, and condemnation makes us think we'll never live up, that we could never do it. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. Notice that it says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happens when you are in Christ Jesus is that you are insulated from guilt and shame. Being in Christ Jesus is a lot like being in this building right now. When you walked to get into this building this morning, you might have experienced some uncommonly cold weather in Florida. You might have felt the cold weather, the cold conditions as you walked in, but now that you are sitting in this room, you are insulated from the conditions that are outside of this room. And when you are in Christ, it's not to say that you don't make mistakes. It's not to say that you don't misstep, but it is to say that you are insulated from the guilt and shame attached to those mistakes. You are insulated from the guilt and the shame that would condemn you in those moments because you are in Christ. And notice that that verse says that God condemns sin. God condemns sin, not the sinner. God doesn't condemn you. He condemns your sin. And that's a very uh, important distinction because the enemy will always try to make it about your identity. The enemy will always try to make it about who you are, to try to bring the condemnation on you. When Jesus' intent through his sacrifice on the cross was always to condemn sin and not the sinner. It was to condemn sin and to give us a way to live a life free from sin, not to condemn us. And Paul is reminding us here that, that God, that what God has done, he has done because he loves you and wants to condemn sin and not you. 
And the voice of condemnation comes in many, many forms and many reminders. And there's really no one who knew this better and no one that we see highlighted more in Scripture than the Apostle Peter. If you're familiar with Peter's story, he was kind of one of the leaders among the disciples. He was one of the strongest leaders among the followers of Jesus. And on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus says that one of his disciples is going to deny that he even knew him. And they all, of course, think that it's not going to be them. And, of course, Peter says, there's no way this would ever be me. But then Jesus is arrested, and he's standing trial, and, and Peter is asked three times outside the trial, I think, weren't you with him? Don't you know him? And three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus. And Jesus had told Peter that this would happen three times before the rooster crowed. And sure enough, Peter denies Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows. And for that time period in between when Peter denied Christ and when Christ had risen from the dead, I imagine that every single time that Peter heard a rooster crow, it was a reminder of his failure. It was a reminder of where he fell short. It was a reminder of where he did that thing he said he would never do. When we were in Guatemala last week, we were staying next to a farm, and there was a rooster on the farm. And it was actually right outside where I was staying. And I don't know what was wrong with this rooster, but this rooster started crowing at 2.30 every morning. Like... I thought that roosters were supposed to have some like God-given innate sunrise wake-up call ability. But at 2.30 in the morning, this rooster would start crowing. And can I just tell you, I had noise machines, I had headphones, I had earplugs at one point. You cannot not hear a rooster. I don't know what it is about the frequency of what they do, but they overcome everything. And that is a lot like the reminders of guilt and shame in our lives. It doesn't matter how much you try to drown it out. It doesn't matter how much you try to block it out. Somehow, it always seems to cut through the noise as a reminder of the places where you did the things you, you said you would never do, where you fell short in a way that you thought you would never fall short. And all of us have our roosters. All of us have the things that remind us of our guilt and shame. For some of us, it's a family member. We see that family member, and it reminds us of the guilt and shame attached to that relationship. For some of us, it's another person. All we have to do is hear their name or hear the sound of their voice, and it reminds us of the guilt and shame in our lives. For some of you, it's somebody you follow on Instagram, and you're scrolling through, and they haven't posted in a while. And then, of course, on your best day, you see their post, and you're reminded of that relationship. You're reminded of that compromise. You're reminded of whatever it was. But all of us have our roosters. All of us have those things that remind us of our guilt and shame. And Peter's response to his failure is very similar to the response that we so often have to our own failure. It's, it's similar to our response when we feel like we've failed, when we feel like we've let ourselves or God down. We catch up with Peter right after he's denied Christ and and Jesus, as far as Peter knows, is dead. He's actually alive, but the disciples do not know this yet. And in John 21, verse 3, 
Listen to what Peter's done. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, notice a subtle thing that Peter says here. After he denies Christ, he says, I'm going fishing. Now, what this means is that Peter is going back to the life and vocation he had before he knew Jesus. That Jesus had laid out for Peter his path, his life. He had spoken over Peter that he would be an incredible preacher and cornerstone in the church. But now Peter has denied Jesus, and now he's living as though he denied Jesus. He's living the life that he was living before he even knew him. And so often that's what we do when guilt and shame enter into our lives. See, it's as if Peter says, well, I said that I didn't know him. I might as well live like I never knew him. I said that I didn't know who he was, so I might as well live the life I was living before I knew who he was. And I think it's significant that Peter doesn't fall into some crazy life of sin. Like, I feel like if this was a Hallmark movie, we would find Peter, like, drunk and homeless on a corner somewhere. It would be like, you know, he fell into this life of sin, and nothing went right for him, and everything fell apart. No, Peter just goes back to something else that he knew before he knew Jesus. Peter just goes back to a life of fishing. And what I've noticed in life is that the enemy is just fine with that. The enemy is just fine if you don't live a life of sin. Because he can turn a moment of sin into a life of shame that doesn't allow you to live the life that God had for you. And so he doesn't need you drunk on some street corner. He doesn't need you to turn to some crazy life. All he needs is to take a moment where you didn't live up. He, all he needs is to take that moment to cause a life of shame, to keep you from the life that God has for you. See, shame often turns into this mechanism that causes us not to use the gifts that we have. It causes us not to use the gifts that we have. See, Peter had a gift of speaking. Peter had a gift of leading. And he says, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my life of fishing. I'm just going to go back to my life before I knew Jesus. But notice another very significant line in that moment. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And then the people in his sphere of influence say, we're going with you. We're going with you. See, so often we think that our shame, our guilt and our shame is simply a private internal matter. And yet Peter led people back to the life they had before Jesus. It wasn't just him. It wasn't just him that went back fishing. He took people with him. And that is the biggest lie that the enemy so often uses in our shame is that it's a private matter that we have to deal with on our own. That it's a private matter that only affects us. That, that we can deal with it on our own because it only involves us. And this is exactly where the enemy wants us is believing that our sin, believing that our shame, believing that our guilt is only our own because we can't fix it on our own. And so if we think we can, and if we never expose it, and if we never face it, it will never be healed. It will never be healed. And I think it's interesting that as this story goes on, they're out in the boat, and it says they caught nothing. It says they caught nothing that day. And then Jesus comes along the shore, and he calls out to them, and he asks, 
He asks, have you caught anything, essentially? And they yell back that they have not caught anything. But in that moment, they don't know that it's Jesus. They can't see that it's Jesus. But John, the writer of this book, it says he turns to Peter and says, that is the voice of the Lord. Now, I think that's interesting because John also wrote a very famous scripture where he says, my sheep know my voice and they follow my voice. And John was living what he said, that just at the sound of Jesus's voice, he recognized that it was his savior. He recognized that it was the Lord. And Jesus says, cast your net on the other side, basically try this again, and they catch a ton of fish. And when Peter realizes in this moment that John's right, that this is Jesus, it says that he plunges into the water and runs towards the shore towards Jesus. And he runs towards them and that the disciples follow him. And that is when we begin to realize that this is a story of redemption. Because as Peter runs back to Jesus, those he had led back to a life of fishing follow him back to Jesus. The story begins to be turned around. But, but there's still this issue nagging at Peter, this issue that he denied Jesus three times. And it says he gets to shore, and it says Jesus is cooking over a fire, which I don't know why, but that's really cool. Jesus is cooking over a fire. And he says, I need some fish. And Peter just caught fish. And so they start to cook the fish. And it says, as they're cooking the fish, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And I don't know this, but I know that if Peter is anything about me, I'd be feeling really nervous about then. Because what it feels like is happening is it feels like Jesus is calling Peter out on his denial. That he's reminding him of what happened. He's reminding, he's asking him, Peter, do you love me? Because, you know, last I checked, you actually denied me. And Peter says, yes, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus asks him again, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know I love you. And then again, a third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says something that we've already heard in this book. He says, Jesus, you who know all things know I love you. And see, I think that what Jesus is getting here at is this idea is that, Peter, your heart condemned you. But I, who know all things, did not condemn you. He's saying, Peter, the reason I asked you three times, see, yes, Peter denied Jesus three times, and there's definitely a parallel there. But I also believe that Jesus was simply trying to get Peter to the revelation that I know all things, and I didn't condemn you. I'm not just asking the question, do you love me? I'm asking the question, do you understand that I know what you did and I love you. And see, that's what Jesus says to each and every one of us, is that your heart may condemn you, but I, who know all things, I already know the thing that your heart is using to condemn you. I still love you. And I think that it's no mistake that Jesus just happens upon these fishermen as they're failing. Like it says that in this moment, they had caught nothing. And Jesus comes to them, and essentially what he says is, try again, but this time with me. And then he comes to Peter, 
and gives him three chances to try again at confessing that he knows him. See, Jesus always shows up in moments of failure and says, you know what? Try again. You know what? I, I know that you were fishing and you didn't catch anything, but why don't this time, why don't you try again, but this time do it with me. This time do it in my power, not your own power and see what happens. And for some of you in this room this morning that you've been carrying around guilt and you've been carrying around shame for far too long, can I just tell you that Jesus comes to you in those places where you fall short. Jesus comes to you in those places where your heart condemns you and he says, I that know everything, I don't condemn you. It's just this easy. Why don't you try again? Why don't you get up and try again? But this time I'm gonna be there for you. This time you don't have to do it on your own. He is the God who comes in our failures and he says, try again. Just try again because this time you'll see the result is different because I am with you. I know all things. I know your heart condemns you. I know what your heart is telling you, but I who know all things do not condemn you. Would you bow your heads this morning with me?